Katie. I'm Erica. And this, and this is, is Book Talk. Hi, Katie. Hi, Erica. Welcome to a delirious 9 p.m. episode of Book Talk Podcast. This week, we finished Honor, and we are going to be joined by a special guest in the second half of this episode. But before we get to that interview, we have got to talk about this crazy ending and so much plot that happened in the last couple pages, which Katie's going to summarize. Spoilers are incoming. So just you've been warned. You've been warned. A lot happened. I'm going to try to wrap it up nicely for you. So Mina's story, the court case ends and upsettingly the men are let go. They are free. And then in their newfound freedom, they immediately come to find Mina and her daughter. They pay off the police and really in a mob are headed to her house. At the same time, Smita is there for the court case ruling is extremely upset through the entire ordeal goes home for a little bit of time with plans to come back from Mina later and figure out what to do next but she's a little bit too late she has a sinking feeling in her stomach and rushes back to Mina um, does all that she can to to save her in the moment she ends up saving Abru and Ami with the help of Mohan working together against the men um, and thank god he was there so Smita and Mohan take Abru back with them to Mohan's house while they figure out what to do next in the middle of all of this grief and tragedy, Mohan and Smita are falling in love. And they, quote Erica, consummate their relationship in a lovely evening. Uh, and then Mohan um, decides that he's going to keep Ebru for now. And Smita decides she's going home to the life that she left. But she gets off the plane and she comes back to Mohan. And they decide to wait and see for a couple months and see where this thing goes. And I loved that it ended with an open ending without all the answers. Um, anything is possible. Again, your definition of an open ending is not my definition of an open ending. There's nothing open about this ending. Well, she's only, yes, there is. She said that she's going to stay with Mohan for six months and then decide what they're going to do next. So you don't know that they end up like adopting a brew and living happily ever after in India. That's 100% what they do. You, but you don't know that. That's why it's an open ending. That is, no, no. This is not an open ending. I, I will, this is, there's no way this is an open ending. An open ending would be, the open ending would be, her in the airport trying to decide whether she could she should leave the gate or not but without us knowing what she decides she chooses fine india she chooses mohan she chooses to stay okay that's our ending you win but i loved okay let me just say um maybe it's not open but um i loved it and that's it that's what kind of ending it was it was a kind that i liked I was surprised how much plot happened after the plot. This the structure of this book is so unique to me in that there again there wasn't overt tension yet there was so much tension and there was so much plot without what I would consider to be a traditional storyline, a traditional like climax and rise and fall. The tension and the climactic scenes sometimes come out of nowhere. Like when Smita finally decides to tell her story and we learn sort of about all the trauma that she had been through before the book even started and which is sort of only foreshadowed throughout the book. I did feel like there were multiple, multiple points of tension that we 
obviously Abru too, and Smita figuring out how she feels about India, about being a mom, about quote unquote settling down. Like all of these things are happening. And it's after we find out what is supposed to be the main climax of the story of the end of Mina's trial, which was still dramatic. But I think that part was less dramatic because we did know we kind of had a sense it was coming the whole time. I will say I was a little bit surprised because I didn't expect that reaction from the men. I probably should have, but I didn't. So I thought the only way this is going to be dramatic enough to live up to what I feel like is coming in this story is if the town is super upset because they find the men guilty. But um, it turns out it could be just as dramatic and horrifying when they get the outcome they wanted. It was funny listening back to the earlier episodes because I started off being like, it's obviously going to be not guilty. And then last week I was like, I don't know what is going to happen. And then it's like, oh no, yeah, it was not guilty the whole time. It was. I felt like it was going to be coming. guilty because the buildup was all around these men not getting what they wanted. And I just felt like it was going to, like I said, like the drama was going to come and the climax and all this tension was going to come from the men who always get what they want, not getting what they want. But she created, you know, enough tension in this horrible scene without that. But I, I was a little bit not, not surprised, but it still wasn't what I expected. Yes, we also feel maybe that Smitha's expectations or her hopes had gotten up, and then they're yeah. dashed. Yeah, I think I went on that journey with her, and then in the end, it's way worse than she ever thought because she has to be there with Mina when she dies, which is just was such a painful section of the book. Oh to my read. God, that scene. Oh, and then Abru and Ami and, and then even after they get them out of there, I mean, he's like, I don't want this kid. Like I do not want to do this. And I feel like that was heartbreaking all over again. And this child is just calling out for her mom. The whole situation is awful and horrifying and so sad. Very tragic. I like that it ended with a little bit of kind of a hopeful future for Abru, for Mohan, for Smita. Like the book is tragic, but as we talk about throughout the story, there's beauty even when there's tragedy and there's still love even when things are falling apart and you still, you know, even if it is a tragic world, there's still goodness to be found in it. So I appreciate that even in telling such a dark story, you can see that as well. Multiple times. Right. We have the love story finally with Smita and Mohan but I still this the love story that resonates with me more is still Mina and Abdul I think they had such a pure and sweet love for each other when one of my favorite scenes is when he finds out she's pregnant and just is beside himself with joy and that is the joy and the hope that carries on at the end of this book and the, I think that's the ultimate love story. I think so too. And their love story came with so much more than just a love for each other, but their belief that that love could change everything, that it, that it mattered, that it was so important. And it was, it was all of those things and it will matter for Abru. It will matter for Smita and Mohan. It will matter for generations of women who will read that story and learn and learn from it and learn about Mina. And I do wish we could have read the story and how Smita kind of ended up portraying her and her life and her love. So I'm a little bit sad about that, but I agree. Their love story was beautiful. The handkerchief. Handkerchief. What's that word? Can you say it? Handkerchief. It's a handkerchief. 
I'm not going to say it. Oh, I feel like I've been delirious all day today. One thing I did not love is what was Anjali's deal? What was she trying to get out of this? I feel the same way that Smitha feels, which is sort of like, you knew this was how it was going to go. You didn't prepare for this. And also, how did she not know what was going to happen to Mina? I feel like she's much more embedded in the local politics and the way that people react in a situation like this. And she didn't warn anybody. Like, I don't um, hold it against Smitha for not knowing what was coming, but it's it's strange to me that Anjali wouldn't be like, okay, this is over now. You have to get out of there or we have to take you. We have to put you in a safe house. We have to move you somewhere. Like It just seems like something she should have known. I totally agree. I think you could, pre how it ended, I think you could make arguments for like setting precedent or whatever it is, like why Anjali took this case to begin with. But I think the lack of preparation for her safety after is like, unforgivable if you're going to take these cases and you're going to use them to move policies and institutions and change things you have got to protect the humans that are going to allow you to do that and by not preparing or even just even if you had no idea what they were going to do I mean why wouldn't you just keep her safe or make sure follow her home something it seems really irresponsible I also feel like there was just multiple stories throughout this book that I want to know what the point of them were or what they were thinking. Nandini, Shannon, I guess, like their kind of relationship. Is her name Anjali? I can't remember her name now, but Anjali? Anjali. Yeah. I just, there were multiple stories I feel like we didn't get into and they seemed, Anjali's seems irresponsible and kind of unrealistic and the other ones just seem underdeveloped. I want to say that I also loved this book, but those, the Nandini and Anjali plot lines were hard for me to understand what the, what was happening. I just can't get over how much time we spent talking about Shannon's fucking hip for it not to come back in any way. Truly. Or Nandini. Why were we in the hospital for four days? End result. Shannon's like, this is my friend Mohan. You need a man with you when you're going to rural India. It will make things easier for you. Do it for me. Okay, half a paragraph and she's with Mohan. Why do we why? Why are we there? Why did they have the awkward lunch? Why is Nandini there? Like the whole thing was so weird. They never came back. I agree. The other person who doesn't come back is their childhood friend who turns yeah. them in. Uh Smitha's childhood friend who turns them in. And Smitha's brother. Again, what is going on with this like character? There's just a lot of gone. characters. Right. But the thing is, like, these characters had this, like, fake depth, like the brother. Like, there was this extremely traumatic scene, which included the brother. So, naturally, you want to know how he's doing, what happened to him. Like, you want to know more about him. If the scene had only been Suinta, it would have been – you wouldn't have wanted to know. But I feel like there were all these stories that were, like, half-started. <laughs> I just need, like, five more books digging into each of these characters in their heads. Yeah. Lots of – I think that was – that's my main critique of this story. I think there was extraneous – plot points and things that didn't seem to make sense to me but overall I loved it I loved the ending I thought it was moving I thought their sort of like shell shock reaction to just like hunkering down in his apartment and thinking they could stay like that forever is so endearing Mm -hmm. and Smitha just being like we can't like we have to like 
kind of make a decision at some point about this. I know. And then her in the airport just like going back and forth and the coffee spilling and her just being like, this is a sign, right? Is this a sign? Is this, am I in a fucking movie right now? It's truly so relatable. Am I the main character? running out and not being able to find him and he's on the other side of a barrier and you're like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) I loved it. I loved the plot. I loved the multiple stories. I was invested in all these characters. I loved them all so much. I just want to be in this world longer, but I think that the book was wonderful. What's your rating of this book out of five stars? If you had, I would give it. it a five out of five. I love books that take me out of what I normally, like my normal world. I love books that make you think. I love talking about different cultures. I feel like there was enough tragedy here, but it was balanced with, um, you know, some hope and some happiness. So five out of five for me. I will give this a four out of five. I think by the end, I loved it. It took a really long time to get there. I think if you're not an avid reader, this book would be really hard to finish because you just, it takes a while before you really care. And there's a lot of setup for, for these two characters. There's a lot of setup. I enjoyed the kind of slow moving parts of it too, like the scene setting in present day and in Mina's. But so I enjoyed kind of the lead up to it. I didn't mind reading it, but I could see the point if you're not you could get bored in the beginning parts as well. It was a long book for someone who's not super engaged. And again, for something where there's not an overt tension that you're motivated to figure out what's going to happen with. It's sort of like, it's just sort of expected. I think the one critique I would have it is the Smita thing where she was really annoying in the beginning and you don't know why. And then it takes a really long time to figure out what made her the way that she is. That would be my only critique of it. I think it would have been, you would have understood more if you'd known from the beginning. But Mohan doesn't know. And so you kind of are going with him on that journey of of finding her annoying or abrasive about India and then finally figuring it out why. So maybe that's the point as well. Yeah, but I loved it. I definitely, it melted my cold heart by the end because I was cheering for them. And I was like, give up your career. <laughs> Wait, no. Whoa, <laughs> whoa, that escalated quickly. I was glad you enjoyed the love story. I listened back to episode three when I said, I really like hope her and Mohan end up together. And it was like dead silent. And I was like, what? You hate it? You're like, no, I like it. So yeah, that I thought they were fine. I still felt like I didn't. It took a while also to know if we were supposed to like Mohan, like if he was a good actor and how their relationship was going to develop. So it started off awkward. I wasn't rooting for them right away. Agreed, because also I didn't know if he was with Shannon. Because, again, what is all this plot in the beginning? Why was he so attentive to her, which is not normal for the culture, for somebody that's a woman that's not in your family? So, like, like how? Why was he there? And kind of how did he end up here? But I think it is normal, though. I think he's he was being hospitable. He was being a good friend. And he was being a good friend. Now but we I know just, it was from a good reason. It seemed unlikely to me in the beginning that Mohan was just there as a friend for her. I guess it's not abnormal, but it just, I was like, what, what is he, is he really just here because he loves her as a friend? It just seemed unlikely. Two beautiful people who are in India together. I don't know. After the break, we are going to be joined by Sri from Brown Girl Bookshelf to talk more about the themes of this book. After our conversation with Sri, next week we have a special episode for you. We read The Girl on the Train in 24 Hours and give you a more delirious than this podcast episode to go along with it. So if you want to read along with us then, or if you've already read the book and want to hear what we thought, 
Join us next week. After that, we start our next book club pick, which is Writers and Lovers by Lily King. We can't wait to get started. Um, well, I'm Shri. Um, I am one half of Brown Girl Bookshelf, uh, which is a platform um, to promote uh, writing and creative works by South Asian authors um, and creators. And I run Brown Girl Bookshelf with Mishika, um, who is my friend from college. And we really started this project um, just during the pandemic. It started out of an uh, interest in talking about books. And we used to talk about that personally on phone calls a lot as we were catching up and uh, wanted to find a space to share more diverse writing. Uh, both of us being South Asian, it kind of became a natural niche as we entered um, kind of the book Instagram and then broader book platform world, finding that there were uh, great platforms and great creators doing work around other kinds of diverse writing. Um, and so we really focused in on a niche that made sense for us. Um, and we've been doing that for about a year and a half now, um, a little longer than that. So it's been it's been a great journey. Um, it's been a lot of fun. And um, I also, um, it, this is our project outside of work. So uh, for work professionally, I work in um, a fertility tech uh, company and I live in the Bay Area. Um, and actually uh, relevant to this particular book and podcast, I have worked in um, India as well. And being Indian American myself, I have also like been very similar to the protagonist in the book of like returning to India and working in rural settings there. So um, throwing that in there as part of my bio and background. I don't know if you found this to be the case, but I definitely have. I think with Katie and I having an existing friendship, talking about books has helped us get deeper as friends and learn more about each other and argue and abstract and sort of discuss like bigger issues. So I love that books help us do that. Oh yeah, that's absolutely, I think, true of Michigan and I as well. Just, um, it feels strange when we don't talk every day uh, and we were can't remember a time that we did not do that because we're almost always having something to share, whether it's about something we're reading, about the platform, or just about our lives. Okay. I'm so excited to talk about this book. The main story that we follow in this novel is Mina's story. And while her story is tragic and heartbreaking, which we know pretty much from the very beginning of meeting her, it also turns into a really beautiful love story. Mina's also unique in that she's the only character who talks to us directly as the reader. What do you think about the way Mina was presented as a character, not just her tragic story, but also the love story that she had with Abdul? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that uh, the first person narrative um, really uh, did a lot for me in this situation, like especially compared, as you said, Mina being the only character who had the first person narration um, relative to the other characters gave me a sense that I understood her personality as a character in many ways much more than the other characters in the book um, because it like is quite clear in how she speaks and the kinds of um, – ways that she thinks that she is like a very genuine, good, good-hearted, simple-minded person. And that's, uh, I think the author does the best job with Mina showing rather than just saying that or telling that. Um, and specifically, I think what's the most remarkable and stood out to me about her love story arc with Abdul is like, um, it's very simplistic in a really beautiful way that I think, um, uh, for me, being being like quite familiar with Indian culture, like it was it. Um, so I think it like showed a lot about 
how romance is viewed in in traditional um Indian societies, but in a in a very positive way. Whereas I think a lot of times the depiction is like arranged marriages are like really like you just meet this person for the first time and like, oh my God, you're getting married to a stranger. And then this love story is kind of like, you know, it's not like they have a long courtship or it's not like they get into like deep conversations like we expect people to when they date or as is the Western tradition in doing so. Um, but we just feel that they have love and it's just very believable still to have that. Um, and as a reader, I I believed it too. I think like the most poignant moment for me of that is like um, – when she has this, that really nice, uh, observation about like, um, and this is how it reveals her character as well. Like how she talks about hands being, um, like if she, if she sees a bunch of brown hands, would she be able to distinguish which one is Hindu and which one is Muslim? Um, like what makes Abdul's hands Muslim? Um, and she like starts having this like self-recognition and they think, um, it, it does a lot both to show their love, but also does a lot to speak to her as a character because she's able to um, quickly get past the biases that she was raised in to just like feel pure love for this man. And I think that was the moment I was like, oh, I believe that this love story is is real. Um, I believe that like they could have persisted versus like, you know, if you heard that in other contexts, it might be like, well, you married this person, you ran, you loped with them after like what, like three conversations in which you had like no real dialogue. Like, like that's is that going to be a successful relationship and this this was not that it felt very believable she's also quite gutsy when it comes to their relationship at a certain point she's kind of bought in and then she drops her handkerchief and she takes the mangoes and you're like oh I feel like excited for her that she's going for it and you're right she also is pretty willing to question and respond to the things he's asking her like how could this be true I'm just a person how could there be anything wrong with the love that we have for each other. And she's like, you know what? Good point. <laughs> it's like, she's such a good character. She is. I think you said that Erica too. I was listening to the third podcast. You were like, as soon as she started having feelings for Abdul, it was like her eyes were immediately opened. She was questioning things. She was going to question the world around her and what she felt and what she had previously believed. And so I think their love was really powerful, but I didn't think about kind of how it was also very simplistic and not this huge buildup, but you still felt it. I still immediately was rooting for them. I was like, they're going to be fine. Their love is one for the ages, but you're right. They had like three interactions. So it is, it is funny to think about it in that way. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I had this is like a, a common thing that happens in a lot of like old fashioned Indian movies. And when I used to see it on screen, like if I watch Indian movies growing up, I'd be like, this is absurd. <laughs> like this, how are these people getting married? <laughs> this makes no sense. And I did, I personally didn't always find it very believable, but somehow I appreciated that I found it very much so in this book. Um, and I think maybe it's because it has that piece of like she's able to transcend this. Um, whole life perspective that she grew up with and and look beyond that uh, because of who he is. In this book, we have Smita kind of going back to India where she was born and raised. Um, obviously, Mita is still living there and had grown up there. How do you think that this book addresses the complicated relationship that immigrants often have with their homeland or with going back? Um, yeah, I have a few different thoughts on that. So I think um, I think it's uh, very particular that she chose both of the protagonists to be women. And I think this is like a quite a specific commentary on like uh, women's experiences in India, which is vastly different than male experiences. And from what I um, 
And and I think like that in of itself, it speaks a lot to um, like what Smitha feels about going back to India. So I'll say like I think it was a it was a bit harsh from my um as I was reading it up until we get to like the climax of the book and we understand Smitha's background because um I I think like. I think she shows the complicated relationship if you almost were to like fuse Smitha and Mina together because like Mina has these encounters in her village and she like she she is the direct recipient of a lot of the bigotry in in the country um but we don't particularly see her or hear her being critical of like Indian society as a whole like she is very critical of like the perpetrators of the violence in her life um obviously fairly so uh but she doesn't make any sort of like broader commentary and that feels right for her character because she is like a very like she's not educated and she's like has a very narrow perspective of the world um I think like what bothered me in some ways about Smitha is she often makes these direct one-for-one comparisons to her life in Brooklyn and then what she experiences in India. And I think there, I think Mohan serves as a good, um, like foil to that of like questioning some of these things. I was a little frustrated when I saw Mohan start shifting towards Smitha's point of view entirely versus like them kind of meeting halfway a little bit. And like, of course, towards the end of the book, we do get that, like she, she doesn't hate the country or anything, but I think, um, it's it's complicated because throughout the book, I find her being like, I, I just want to go back to Brooklyn and these things are just better in the US. And I just don't think that that is necessarily the case. I think probably the best, the way, the, the one particular experience the author is giving here is the experience of somebody who thinks the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, and that is one one version of the immigrant experience. I'll say that like that hasn't been mine. Granted, I immigrated to the U.S. when I was four, and I have basically no recollection of living in India um, as a child. But going back, I used to go back, like you know, frequently growing up with my to visit my grandparents and things. And there were certainly times I was there the whole summer, and I was like, "It's hot. I'm bored. I miss my friends. I can't speak this language. I don't want this food anymore, and I just like don't want to be here." Um, but I never had quite as much of a, um, and certainly as I got older too, and as like a woman, I had that feeling of like, this is so annoying that I can't go out by myself anywhere. There is a lot of, you know, just blatant sexism and blatant patriarchy and violence and, you know, kind of like passive violence that's just allowed here, like the amount of men who stare and things like that. Um, and I had all those criticisms, but I just didn't have quite as strong of a reaction to it as Smitha. Again, when we get her story, I think it's more justified, but I felt that the, that the viewpoint was a little too black and white for my, for my taste. I had this similar reaction when we first meet her. It's like, okay, we get it. You don't want to be here. Your friend dragged you here. You resent her. You don't like Nandini. Like we get it already. And I think it maybe it comes a little too late when she tells her story, because then as soon as I heard her story, you realize like, oh, it's just response to trauma. She's like writing off the whole country because of something very localized that happened to her. That makes sense. And we do that all the time uh, with our own trauma and just like, oh, well, I actually hate that and I never liked it and it's not part of me and I reject it completely. That part, then she started to become empathetic, but I agree. It was like, it was pretty heavy handed and 
I think maybe it's because the author knew where she was coming from before we did maybe as the reader. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, yeah, I felt the same. And I think, I think honestly, what would have done it better is if I got the first person uh, perspective of Smitha rather than it being told. Because I was like, how many times will you repeat like you don't want to be here and it's just the narrator who's saying this? Or it's like both the narrator will say it and then she'll just like say these things. And I think um, my biggest uh, difficulty and challenge with this book was that I never got a sense of Smitha as a person. Um, like I could, I can speak to who I feel like Mina is as a person, but like, I didn't see that much of like a personality, like a robust character in Smitha, um, other than like what was told she's like, like we're told that she's private and we're told that she like, doesn't like revealing things. We're told that like, you know, she uh, is grieving her mother, like all these different things, but I didn't feel it. Like I didn't feel any kind of like empathy towards her because I didn't feel like I got to know her. I think it's always harder when you're learning about somebody through the narrator rather than being inside their head and hearing what they feel in the moments too. I did also think she was really annoying in the beginning. And then you feel bad for being thinking that she was annoying in the beginning because you find out why. Um, but I liked that her and Mohan kind of did go back and forth and you, he did like lean a little bit further into agreeing with her, but I think they both were challenging each other the whole time. So I really liked that about kind of their relationship. She didn't want Mohan to like, when I was reading, I was thinking, you know, she didn't want Mohan to lose his sparkle of India and lose like what made him happy there. But she also wanted him to like acutely feel how unhappy she was there. She like wanted both. She was like, I want you to know how bad this sucks for me, but I don't want you to hate India. I don't, that's not what I'm trying to do. And I was like, yes, it is. That's exactly what you're trying to do. <laughs> Or at least that's what you're doing. One thing I was thinking about in this book, um, I read it in some summaries and we kind of just talked about it, about kind of Smita's point of view of India as a whole. Do you think, um, and what do you think Thrudy's opinion on this would be, if it's possible to love a place or a country and to also feel shame about certain policies or practices or traditions that come along with that? Not necessarily India, but like in general. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love this question. Um, and I can share a, like a like a personal, like as I mentioned, like having worked in India, um, a very like personal take on this as well. So I think like, so uh, I, a couple of years ago, um, worked on, I, I went back and lived in Pondicherry, which is in a small town in Southern India. And I was working on a project around menstrual hygiene for um, women with disabilities in rural India. And I was doing this, uh, living there, like doing this long-term project. And um, menstrual hygiene carries like a lot of taboos. Um, and I grew up knowing a lot of those taboos and like were like very familiar with the kind of, and, and particularly like in, um, in a lot of societies, but a lot of like rural societies and traditional groups within India carries taboos, not so much in like urban India anymore. Um, but basically, like, I think uh, the taboos are around, like, for example, like, women shouldn't enter the household when they're um, when they're on their periods. They shouldn't, like, touch food. They have to, like, follow these very strict set of rules because they're considered impure, essentially. And um, I was working on kind of, like, some of the public health awareness uh, surrounding that and, like, better hygiene practices. But in doing so, I was often faced with this criticism from 
uh, both like Indian immigrants and Indians in India of like who like what like who am I basically to go back to this country and just be highlighting this one really negative thing um, like I. I, it's basically a criticism of saying like, you know, you're, you're fixating on these, on these negative things of India and projecting like, um, a bad view of, I got like one specifically like a comment from, uh, an alumni at my university, um, on like a LinkedIn post or something about the work that I was doing. And I went to like, you know, a school that didn't have a lot of South Asians or anything like that. And so I think she commented saying like, the fact that the school is writing about this now, anyone's exposure to India through you is going to be through this lens of like, that there's these really regressive, you know, practices there and we treat women terribly. And like, why are you projecting this? Like you as an Indian American also, like, who are you to go back and like make these comments. And I had thought a lot about that. I continue to think a lot about that. What the answer I came to for me personally is that like, why would I bother to work and try to move some of these policies and practices in a, in a better, towards a better future if I did not love this country and if I did not love this culture? Like I could have just stayed here and been like, I love my life here. I'm not going to do anything. Why would I be critical and like critical in a way that's not just dismissive, but like in, in some way that's actually um, trying to improve some amount of situations. Like I'm not at all trying to say that I was successful or made some big difference, but it was more like my intention behind it was really from a place of like, this is something that I care deeply about. It's something that I personally resonate with. I don't think that anyone can speak to who has more of an ownership over this. Like this is a slightly tangent into like immigrant identity and and hyphenated identities and whatnot. But the point being that I think like, can you love a country and still, um, you know, feel ashamed of these policies and practices. I think absolutely. I think in the same way that we are very critical, we're we're often the most critical of people that we love. The problem with that becomes like people are people have feelings and you should maybe shouldn't be so critical of people that you love. But should we be critical of institutions that we care about? Absolutely. Like that's the entire like bedrock of democracy. That's the absolute bedrock of like anything that you care about, you have to keep chipping away at it and improving it. Um, or you could just like abandon it and let it and let it uh, fade away. And the fact that we're not doing that with Indian culture, with India as a society, I think speaks to this. Um, the other way that I started thinking about it is like I think um, to do it to to be uh, try to go in and like shift policies or shift practices and change policies and like you know make some kind of um, or even just criticize, even just like blithely cr- criticize and maybe not even like taking action. Um, but to criticize something that you hate, like a country that you hate, I think is actually like the colonialist project because it's like going into a country as a, a, a with a colonist mindset of saying like, this is, this is all bad and I'm just going to erase what exists here and like destroy it and tear it down and replace it with what, with, which I think is right. But when you do this out of love, you say like, there are so much of this that's important and I want to preserve it and I want to honor it, but I want to make it better and safer and like, and, and a way that like people can live equally and happily. And so like, let's, let's put like, this is a, this is a project of love, even if it comes with things that we are ashamed of, things that we want to work against, you could like repress all of that or run away from it, or you could like work to change it. So I think they absolutely go hand in hand. Yeah, I think it's such a good point to differentiate between how 
white Americans in particular, although we're not that unique uh, globally, tend to have this idea that like, oh, that's bad. It would be better if we replace it with our institutions. And that is not the mindset of like someone who's actually working to improve it. That's someone who's outside of it and doesn't understand it. Um, but like how we approach American systems, we can look at it and be like, in all these faults, there is something here to work on. That's tough for me to remember. Um, but Katie gave me the the asking of like, okay, well, how, do I feel this way about New York City? Which I do feel like, yeah, there are lots of things that are wrong and difficult and challenging about New York City, but I'm very committed to it as a project and as a place and improving the lives of everyday New Yorkers. So definitely that- comes out of your undying love for New York City, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But I think it's harder when you're like, okay, do you feel the way about America? And you're like, no, you know, no. But like, well, no, you didn't say that, but people are like, it's easy to dismiss kind of the bigger thing. When you think about something that you, I know you love, then I think it's easier to consider from that point of view. Yeah. But I, I think like, um, I, particularly the feeling of shame reveals a lot of how personal that feels because it's not, um, shame doesn't come when you completely like have zero personal stake in something or when you hate something, right? It comes like when you feel like I am, this, this sucks. I don't want it to be this way because I care so much about this. Like you take personal, it feels personal when you feel ashamed. And so I think like, um, you know, the, so many different ways, I think like a, when I said like, this is sort of the bedrock of like democracy, I really think that the American, um, like American history has like shown this more than any other. And like the ways that we have like set up society to like have so much freedom of everything, right? Like to, to really say like, you're, you must be invested in this country and like continue to like have all these freedoms to be so invested in this country so that if you don't like something and you can, and you want to change it, it feels personal because like you feel very proud to be from that place and therefore you feel ashamed when things are not great in that place. It is. I think we are getting to a place. Well, maybe we've always been at this place where we don't allow or we don't sit with the shame of the failure of the American project in some ways. We don't allow it to penetrate to our core and we find other ways of identifying ourselves or from distancing ourselves because it distances us from the responsibility to fix it. Yeah, that's a great point too. Um, yeah, I think that like it's easy to lift up the American project as something that is not still extremely imperfect and ongoing and rather like something that has just been like done. Um, but it's rather that like a system has been set up and we need to continue pouring a lot of effort into it to actually make that system now equitable for groups that it historically has not been. This is very related to what we were just talking about. When I'm reading this book as an American, and as I imagine most of our readers are reading this book from outside of India, it can be easy to say that these kinds of things would not happen here. This is not something that would happen to us to distance ourselves from the challenging elements of this book. Um, But in the past few years, and even in recent political events, we've seen women's rights being stripped away and walking backwards in some ways from more of our progressive ideals. How do you think that books set outside of our maybe normal lives or everyday lives can help us grapple with issues at home and in our own lives? That's a great question. I think that um, 
this was both this is like I think this is the author's hope certainly is my hope and is in some ways my worry of like how strongly she juxtaposed like Smitha for so much of the book saying like Brooklyn is great all these things are great they had a few lines in between of being like I know that there's these problems that exist in America too but like ugh, like India has all of these things and in saying that that's when I would really harp and be like I could have a laundry list of issues that I have with women's rights in the U.S. and with like the ways that that intersects with different like racial groups and all these other groups as well. Right. So, um, so yeah, so I think like the author's hope, um, and certainly my hope is like, you can look at this and say, um, you know, the way that, uh, Smitha is forced to like, you know, her job and her situation, like force her to continue to be in India and then like start to chip away at the trauma that she carried there and the the realities and like the kind of impact that she wants to make and, um, you know, how she wants to honor Mina and all these things. I think like, I'm hoping what that, what that, what I think that gave me at least is the sense of like, you it's a very small step. Like we don't actually ever see Smitha at the end. Like she's not becoming this like women's rights activist at the end of the book. Right. Like she simply is just sitting with the problem a little bit more um, because she feels like ready to do so. And so I think like what that really like shows me is like, it can be so draining. And in the last like I mean, it feels like whatever, like six years now that we have had just like so many ups and downs with like women's rights and um, the number of of political situations that have um, brought up a lot of tough feelings. It can feel, it can really weigh on you and it can feel like, what is, what am I even like working towards anymore? Like what change is actually happening? We're just like moving backwards. So I think... um, what books like this can do is like put us in a story, you know, at the at the simplest of things, like we get to escape to this other world, into the lives of this other character, and in some ways feel like a rejuvenation of spirit to like come back and think about like, I am facing these kinds of this version of this like right now, this week, like as news comes out, as like political opinions like come out, you know, um, I was thinking about like, the amount of grief and heaviness that I felt like the week of um, the uh, Supreme Court um, appointment of Brett Kavanaugh, for example, and just like the amount of conversations I had with women in my life of like what that week brought up for so many women across this country. And sometimes you just need to like sit there and grieve it. And other times you need to like get out there and do stuff with it. And this book puts you back in that, in that put me at least back in that mindset by the end of it, once I was able to just like enjoy my time, enjoy my time like reading this story and then thinking about like, God, this is relatable. Like I hate that this is relatable, but like fine, let's go out there and like continue to do stuff, you know? Uh, So I think, yeah, I think like that is – I think the author's hope is really like feeling feeling like this is a collective struggle. We all have our own versions of this to work at, being reminded that like – these institutional problems that have just been built up for centuries, like we'll take some chipping away and we just like needed, I really needed to have my spirit renewed, um, that that can be possible. Oh, thought. 
I think when you are reading, when you're able to kind of get into a story about somebody else and let it inspire you in that way, it almost makes it easier to look back at the struggles that you're dealing with too, because it's not so direct. You don't have to like look directly at it, but you can look at it peripherally and apply it without having to like be in the current media bubble. Like if you're in the US, you don't have to be in that, but you can still deal with it kind of peripherally, if that makes sense. You can look at it in a new way too. It's like Esther Perel talks about how like couples just need a new story. You get stuck in the same story and like part of the challenge is just to like look at the thing you've been dealing with a lot in a new way from a new angle and maybe with some new hope like you were saying like some new energy that it could be better that you could inspire change. And I like that Smita's character too is not she's somebody who wants change and who's growing through the story, but she's not perfect. She doesn't come out of this, like you said, as this, you know, world renowned women's activist who changed everything overnight through this story. Like she's still just a person trying to do what she can do in the spaces that she's in and figure out what that means. And it's okay to not, it, not everything that she does has to change the world tomorrow. So I liked that also, which I think is hopeful. Hopefully that came out. Hopefully. (laughs) Um, so speaking of Smita, we talked about her commitment to journalistic objectivity. Um, do you think being objective, completely objective, is even possible, um, especially when you're dealing with issues that are really close to your heart? And I want to know, too, if being subjective or, you know, really actually feeling those things is always bad, in your opinion. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not a journalist, so I have no idea how this, like, has impact on, like, journalistic ethics as a whole. But... Um, I will just comment on like, I think like, um, so I, I actually maybe have like somewhat of a, um, I, I can see both sides. So I can see from like a journalistic perspective, the one issue that I have with being subjective is that I do think that like eventually it will contribute to these echo chambers that we've seen in recent political years where it's just so hard to get through to other people because you're just, you're speaking in echo chamber and you're only getting your opinions heard by the people who have shared the same ones, whereas you're really trying to move the needle maybe. So I think like for maybe like practical activist purposes, it's maybe not always great to have like an extremely subjective view, especially like as a journalist. Um, And I think, um, and I think perhaps maybe um, the one other way that I can see the subjectivity um, being problematic is from a journalist, from any third party rather, right? Like I didn't, my work in India wasn't as a journalist, but like going in and trying to uh, share the stories of some of the women that I met, for example, um, in like a final presentation and things like that, that I did. I tried really hard to think about if I was being fair to how they would want their stories to be told. And I think like in general, this is just like an ethical um question that anybody who is like sharing the stories of others need to think through because like I can hear like I can I can look at the entire like story arc that Smitha has and like very clearly her traumatic background is like glaring as like this is if I were to ask like what's up with this Smitha character I want like the too long to read on her like she her history would be the one right but like she has a whole life. Like if I, you know, if she was a real person, like would she want her life to be 
just told in that way. And with Mina especially, um, you know, to your first question, I think her love story is so important to bring out there because while it was brief, while it was like shrouded by a lot of trauma, was so beautiful. And like, would she want her life to be told simply through this um, outsider's perspective that's like, God, this is horrific. Like, it is horrific, like no doubt. But like, you know, I wouldn't want someone to look at my life and like just strip it down to the worst bits and then say like, God, she has a bad life. Like, you know, so I wouldn't want to do that to anybody. And this is something I thought a lot about again, like in when I was there. And then I think the author does a great job of doing this with Mina, of making her a well-rounded character. So this is where I think subjectivity can really put some shields on to like, and you need to make sure that the people who you're who you're talking about want to be spoken about in that way. Um, but as the broader question of like, do you need to be objective in the sense of, do you need to go take every side to the story and then give it like equal weight and equal representation? Like, I mean, frankly, no, like in this case, like I just simply don't think that's the case because we see, I mean, we, as the, as the readers, we see that the, like, the men in the story who are the perpetrators of violence are like blatantly lying. So like, why would you give them the equal, like, you know, hashing that kind of like thing out? Um, obviously in real life, it's like hard to like draw these lines, but um, I think that there, I think that there is like a lot of, I personally have a lot of weight and like, you should just believe women. Um, and so I kind of go by that, like just believe women. <laughs> and, um, and then like, so it's probably skewed in that perspective and I don't particularly mind um, when pieces that I read have that skew. Yeah, Katie was like, drop the objectivity already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I also, Erica Give had some good points food. when I was listening back. Yeah, I have like a, I am definitely a bleeding heart. That's why I work in the nonprofit world because I'm like, no, yeah, give give everything that you have to the for everybody all the time. But <laughs> I think, I can't remember your point now, Erica, because now I'm disagreeing with myself oh, again that, in my head. Oh, is that like Smita but... can do more? So Smita, by remaining objective and telling Mina's story, could potentially do more for Mina by having journalistic integrity with the way she told the story. But that was before I knew what happened to Mina, which is really, yeah, really sad. Yeah, um, that's actually really that's a really great uh, point as well, though, because I think like. Um, Smitha having journalistic objectivity doesn't necessarily have to mean that she reports like exactly what the men in the story tell her, but I think it can mean that she removes herself from Mina's story. And I think maybe that does need to happen to give Mina the full amount of attention that she deserves. Right. And I liked what you said too about telling the story the way she wants it what's important to her too and I think you do have to be objective if you let your own feelings get in the way of it you could just focus on the tragedy of it what needs to be fixed what is so bad to point that out but there's also beauty even in these traumatic stories uh so one of the technical aspects of this book is the parallel stories of Smita and Mina do you like this type of novel overall? And does this structure work for you in this particular story, in every story? How do you feel about the sort of the parallel story development? Yeah, as I said, I think I would have really liked if um, both characters had that first person narration. Um, for me, 
Smitha was a difficult character to get on board with, even after we hear her backstory, because she had all of these frustrating moments in the beginning that I was just like really annoying. Um, so in that way, the the that difference in structure did not work for me in this particular book. Um, but I think uh, the parallel stories, yeah, I think it does work. There's a lot of books that, that certainly that like do this well. I think to really like pack a punch, um, Mina's story had to go the way that it does. And so then you need like a character who is carrying the story forward, which is Smitha. Um, and so in, in other books, I'll say that like I think it has felt more – um, it has felt more seamless and I didn't, it didn't feel quite as seamless like here. Um, because I think, yeah, I, I think it actually really was just this first person narration, um, and like switching back and forth between that for me. Um, it felt like Mina's story was very strong, but we were still supposed to see the protagonist as Smitha. Um, and I, and I kind of wanted to have them at least like both be there, but, um, in general, I think like, I do actually really like the, the that kind of structure of novels. I like like, you know, multiple character arcs and things like that. Um, it works fine here, but I don't think it has done the best job of that that I've read. I think we talk about this a lot with stories that have multiple points of view or multiple characters, especially in different times. And I think it is really hard uh, because we critique this a lot. So I know that it's really hard to get them to be balanced on the emotional journey that you're on or on how much time you give the characters or in how relatable they are um, or whose story is even balancing like the level of trauma or which one is supposed to be more lighthearted to not make the book all traumatic or all lighthearted. And I think it's a hard balance, but when you get it right, um, it can be really good. Yeah. I'm big on the balance. It drives me crazy when one story, which it, it was a little bit, but then it got, it really got there. Like I believed in both of the love stories. I do think Smita went on more of a journey. Like we saw her grow where Mina sort of you it's all baked in from the beginning you sort of know what's going to happen and not how she's going to come to her end but you know the that she's a tragic character but sometimes for me if one character is more sympathetic I get annoyed when we're switching to the other character I'm like I don't care about this person (laughs) go back to the other person like put me back I want to know what they're doing I can't leave them where they are, it must continue with them. And in that way, it can be really challenging when there's two people. You just love one of them more, usually. I just, yeah, it never bothers me as much as it bothers Erica. I'm like, I like the breath of fresh air between, but I get it. It's like a good, a lot of opinions about that part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they like definitely contrast like the privilege between them and things like that too. So I think it like, it's it's like, it, it serves to like have, more than just like a a good lick flow in the book, it seems to like be that they're supposed to be contrasting where they're each at in their lives and like the kinds of like ways that their privileges, how they can respond to their traumas given the privileges that they have um, as, as they become more unveiled. All right. I think that's all the questions that we have. I think the last thing we always ask is what else are you reading or what would you like to recommend that people pick up? Yeah. Um, so just before Honor, I finished a book called um, The Immortal King Rao by Valhani Vara. It's such an interesting, funky, different book than I've read. It's like a it's like a dystopian 
like kind of science fiction-y kind of like historical fiction book um like if you're into any of those themes and it, it also has some amount of uh setting structure in India but also in this like futuristic realm very creative very interestingly done so if any of those things sound interesting to you or you're still looking for books that are set in India to a degree I would recommend that um, next on my list, um, as you can tell for Brown Girl Bookshelf, I basically read a lot of South Asian and South Asian centered books. So my next read after this is called A Mirror Made of Rain by Nahid Feroz Patel. Um, and yeah, I think the other book that I'll recommend, um, which is just like a book that I have like loved, it actually touches on in a di- very different sense. This, the, some of the topics of honor is called A Passage North. Um, by Anuk Arud Pragasam, and it's set against um, post-war, post-Civil War Sri Lanka. Um, it's just a very philosophical book and like one of one of my favorite books that I've read. So I always recommend that one. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We had a great time talking to you. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I read so many books. You're going to be so proud of me. You had some plane rides. Let's hear it. I read Frederick Backman's book, Anxious People, which you had lent me. I thought I was going to like this book a lot more than I did. It's possible that it became something different in my mind because I'd seen the cover and I'd seen people talking about this book. It is very lighthearted and jokey but then has like interjections of really serious commentary on life and on relationships it was just not what I expected and it did a lot of like this is a story about a girl this is a story about nine people and a bank robber but it's not really a story about that it's a story about this it's just like a lot of editorializing that I kind of found annoying after a I while. could not get into it. I read the first like four chapters and I was like, this is annoying and it's also not what I thought. And I did not finish it. I did finish it. I did enjoy it, but it's pretty lighthearted. I think this would be a good beach read. Okay. Maybe I'll try again on a beach. I also feel really bad for Girl on the Train because Girl on the Train had to follow me reading Jillian Flynn's Gone Girl which I had seen the movie of, but I vaguely remembered. Like I knew some of the major plot points, which I will not reveal from the movie, but I kind of forgot everything else. And I thought the book was so good. I'm team Amy all the way. And (laughs) I saw a TikTok afterwards because TikTok just somehow knows what I'm reading as well. Um, where someone was like, I put on my hinge profile that if you thought that Amy was a bad person and gone girl, like don't match with me. (laughs) Do not at me. Anyways, I really loved it. I am obsessed with Jillian Flynn. Now I thought gone girl was 
a book with two people who are both bad people who are incredibly likable still. I thought they were like really you kind of get where they're both coming from despite the fact that they're both fucked up and I really enjoyed it. Also it has a pretty good layer of tension and mystery that you just like have to know what is coming. And I'm so close to being done with Vladimir. I can't wait to read just the last couple of pages. So I okay, so you're loving it. Later. I am loving it. I'm obsessed. I'm so glad you're loving it. The first half of the book, I was like, I'm just loving being inside of her head and how she sees the world and this character study of her point of view of the scandal of Vladimir, of just her life being a mom, et cetera. I could have just stayed there, but I feel like things got unexpectedly wild three quarters of the way through. And I was like, wait a minute, what? I'm here for the wild. I'm here for the like old horny professor lady. I loved her. I, there's a chance that I'm going to make a hard left turn based on the very end. It's going in a way I didn't expect. And it's sort of changing the way I'm interpreting the meaning of the book. Yeah. So I reserve the right to change my mind. Okay. Can't wait to hear what you actually think when you finish it. What else did you read? That's it. Oh, and then Girl on the Train. And Honor. Okay. All right. I also read Honor and Girl on the Train. Then I read a very cute romance book. Um, One of my friends said she loved this book. And like we always say, if you love a book, if it's your favorite book, we will read it. So I read it. It was an adorable. It is purely a romance. There is the normal like conflict somewhere in the middle where you're like, is everything going to be okay? But because it's that genre, you know that it is. Uh, We follow Evie or Evie. Not really sure. Um, She was living a life that she hated her abusive or emotionally abusive husband. She gets up her courage one day, packs her suitcase and gets ready to leave. As she's leaving, she gets a call that her husband has died in a car accident. And so as she's trying to leave him, he literally dies. So now she is the widow of this famous doctor. So she's trying to kind of find her independence again, be properly grieving how she's supposed to be grieving etc. Um, her best friend Andy has like the perfect solution and asks her to rent a room, rent a room, her spare room, to his super hot ex major league baseball player friend. So you can imagine that it just gets good from there. It was delicious. Highly recommend it for a beach read. What was the book called, Katie? Evie Drake starts over, <laughs> Erica. Shit. <laughs> Edie or Evie? It's Evie. I think it's Evie or Evie. So it's E V V I E. So I don't know if it's Evie or Evie, but Evie Drake starts over is what I'm saying. Set in the South. Very cute. Very good. Beachy read. Then I also read Redhead by the Side of the Road. I have no idea where I got this book. Literally no idea. I don't know where it came from. I feel like I recently bought it. Can't remember where. Um, It is about, it's a short and easy. I loved this. It's like a character study of this grumpy old man. Uh, actually he's not grumpy. He's like, I mean, not old. He is grumpy. He's like in his thirties named Micah. He's a self-employed IT guy. He has his life down to like a very perfect routine that suddenly completely ruined. Um, when a teenager claiming to be his son shows up when his girlfriend kind of passive aggressively asks him to move in. And all of a sudden he's like, no, 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 this is not the plan. Um, And so you just kind of go through his life, which is very ordinary as he struggles with these very ordinary things. But there's something about it that 
is still this like really compassionate and interesting story, even though it's mundane that I loved. I think also, sorry, it's talking really about like the power of being a human and needing to connect with others, even when you don't think you do. It sounds good. It was good. I really liked it. I'm reading the Magnolia Palace right now. Uh, the dust cover says it is a tantalizing novel about secrets, betrayal, and murder in New York City's most impressive Gilded Age mansions. That sounds great. So far, it's pretty good. It's following two separate stories. It's following um, <clears throat> a girl, Lily, I think, and her mom, Angelica, in kind of 40 years apart. Dueling timelines. Interesting. Okay. Well, let me know how it goes. Okay, we will do. All right. Okay, bye. Bye. Book Talk is made by me, Erica Bailey, and Katie Cheney. With production support from Dan White, our theme music is by Dan White. We'll see you next week. After we finish this conversation with Shri, our next episode is a special episode where we read a commonly known, very famous, other adjectives, book, The Girl on the Train, in... <laughs> Can I <do> it again? <laughs> commonly known, other adjectives. What's another word? Commonly known... Okay, I'm going to do it now. Um... <laughs>